Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the most important and really the most debated political question of the moment. What is happening to the Republican Party? Our country, our democracy is currently under siege by one of our two major political parties, one controlled by a twice impeached one term president who's more Jim Jones than George Washington. A party that, thanks to Donald Trump's rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, white grievance, and an unquenchable thirst for absolute power, embraces causes that were once viewed as fringe. Things like abortion bounty hunting, now the law in Texas, banning books, or really any idea that doesn't render every single white American in history going all the way back to 1619 and right up to today as innocent and benevolent even as a noose literally hung outside the U.S. Capitol just six months ago. It's a party that's committed to turning domestic terrorists into martyrs and freedom fighters while launching a crusade against the COVID vaccine and now any vaccine, even if that leaves America more vulnerable to sickness and suffering and death. And anyone who's encouraging you to stay alive by taking the vaccine, well, they're called needle Nazis. Remember when these ideas were relegated to some kooky corner of the Internet? When erasing a politician's crime sounded like Putin? Not too long ago, our idea of the Republican fringe was a bunch of guys in tri-corner hats getting really angry about taxes and a black president. Well, this new fringe ate that fringe for breakfast. And it's taken over the mainstream Republican Party. And it all culminates in that new bizarro world Republican ideology doing everything in their power to make it so hard for you to vote that you can never vote them out. And you know what they call that? A dictatorship. And as in all autocracies, what's fueling all of it is the chief autocrat's big lie. Something Texas State Representative James Tallarico took on head on while standing in the belly of the beast, Fox News. You have made a lot of money personally, and you've enriched a lot of corporations with advertising by getting on here and spewing lies and conspiracy theories to folks who trust you. And so what I'm asking you to do is to tell your voters right now that Donald Trump lost the election in 2020. Can you resolve the lie that is Democrats are now for voter ID? It's not your show, sir. But at least you resolve the idea that Democrats are not for voter ID. Real quick. Can you answer the question? Did Donald Trump lose the election in 2020? I'm questions. I'm not... Don't is really this, feel is this, is this an uncomfortable, an uncomfortable question for you? No, it's See, this is the, the, well, Pete, the reason my I question is, is why are you in Washington, D.C. and not in Texas? <laughs> the Texas state representative in that clip, James Tallarico, joins me now, along with Democratic strategist Sochi Inahosa and Stuart Stevens, senior advisor for the Lincoln Project. Uh, I have to start with you, Representative Tallarico. Uh, kudos to you for standing up to not even just, you know, beat Hegseth, I think his name is, but also the big lie. Can you talk about how that big lie about the election has impacted your constituents, because that seems to be why you're in D.C. right now. The big lie is the only reason that I'm on this show talking to you right now. If it wasn't 
for Donald Trump's lie that the election was stolen in 2020, I'd be back at my desk in the Texas State Capitol working on early childhood legislation. Um, I wouldn't be here fighting for my constituents and their sacred right to vote. And that's what we have to understand. All of this is because of one man's inability to accept factual reality and because of one party's complicity with that big lie. And so I was proud to, to go into the lion's den and expose that big lie for exactly what it is. We can't treat voter suppression as a legitimate issue to be debated in the public square because it is not. It's not like any other issue. Uh, it is foundational, it is essential, and eroding that is anti-American and is undemocratic. And I am proud to stand with my colleagues in fighting for our sacred right to vote here in Washington, D.C. And you were a middle school teacher, right? I think you said in that, in that segment. That's exactly right. Uh, and I'm also well, a Texan. You know, we, we are a, yeah. a rowdy bunch uh, and we know how to fight. So, <laughs> yeah, well, clearly Texans know how to fight. You guys are teaching us all how to fight. What did you teach in middle school? What subject? I taught sixth, sixth grade language arts. Language arts. So, I mean, I, I have to ask you just from as somebody who, as you said, I think you said a sixth or seventh generation Texan, somebody who's in the South, governing in the South. How, the atmosphere that Republicans have created, has that filtered down to the the, the level of, you know, the, the kids in your former school, the, their, their parents. What kind of atmosphere has been created by this zeal against history, against voting? Um, does it feel as much like war on the ground as it feels to us watching it happen here in D.C.? Absolutely. Before I was a politician, I was a middle school teacher, as you mentioned, and I taught on the west side of San Antonio, a beautiful, historic Mexican-American neighborhood. And I only taught black and brown students, and they and their families are the ones that are targeted by these types of extremist pieces of legislation, particularly this voter suppression bill. And I, when I ran for office, I ran to improve my community. Uh, and I took a sacred oath in front of God, in front of my students, in front of my constituents to uphold the Constitution, not to uphold Greg Abbott's extremist agenda. And I'm doing that here in Washington, D.C. I am fighting for my constituents' right to vote. I'm fighting for my former students and their right to vote uh, and their family's right to vote. That's what this, this entire trip is about. I am doing my job. Even though I'm not in Austin, I'm doing my job. Uh, and unlike our home state senator of Ted Cruz, you know, I'm, I'm leaving the state to serve my constituents, not to abandon them. Amen. Amen to that. Sochi, you know, the, the, the reason I wanted, uh, you know, Mr. T uh, Representative Talarico to, to describe that the way it feels on the ground is I, I think a lot of folks worry that Democrats in Washington aren't reacting with the same level of urgency that Representative Talarico and his fellow Texas Democrats are right, that the sense in in D.C. is that, well, you know, we'll do a couple bipartisan deals and, you know, we'll pass a nice Juneteenth law and everything will be fine. I worry that that's what they think. Do you get the sense that that's what they think? Well, it does worry me as well. You have these Texas state representatives who are in the minority and have been in the minority for some time. They're using every tool in their arsenal to, to stop a voter suppression bill right now and to protect black and brown people to make sure that they have the right to vote. That says a lot. They they don't have very many tools, but they're using everything. I think this has happened three times in history where able, they were able to break quorum. And now they're all in Washington, D.C. They're pressuring the White House and Congress to act. And yet you don't have Democrats who control the White House, the House and the Senate um, necessarily acting right now. I do think that um, it, I mean, it, it's, it would be a major contrast for Democrats right now 
to deliver on voting rights. You have a Republican Party right now who continues to back Donald Trump and the big lie. And the majority of Americans don't stand on the side of Republicans. They actually stand on the side of protecting voting rights. So it is a win-win for Democrats right now. And what um, the American people want to see is bold action from the Democratic Party. Um, and that is my hope that happens in the near future. Uh, Liz Stewart, let me let me go to you real quick. Let me play for you. The Texas governor, Greg Abbott, um, tweeted out a video in which he defended the law that they're trying to pass that will limit the ability to vote. Take a listen. President Biden and the Democrats must stop the misinformation. Texas is very simply making it easier to vote and harder to cheat. That is the talking point, the easier to vote, harder to cheat talking point. But it's, it's obvious just when you read the, the, the letter of the law that that is not true. But I wonder if Democrats are, because of the way that it's being framed by Republicans, and Republican framing always seems to win because they're good at it, um, it's sort of anesthetizing D.C. Democrats. Do you can you understand why Democrats seem in D.C. seem much more to be prioritizing cutting deals with Republicans and doing bipartisan bills with them and normalizing them than having the urgency to say this is not this is not a normal Republican Party. I, I say this all the time. My father was if he had been an American citizen would have been a Republican. He loved the Republican Party. He's a Reaganite. He would he's rolling in his grave right now being like, what is this? And, and so I, I do you think Democrats are almost anesthetized to it somehow in D.C. from the president on down? Well, look, on Greg Abbott, I mean, somebody who won't admit that the president of the United States is a legal president is not someone to listen to when it comes to about <laughs> truth. Um, it's just a you know, straight up uh, lie. Um, look, I, I think that Democrats have to nationalize this election. And I was one of those Republicans on the other side that was not so bad at nationalizing elections. They have to make 2022 a referendum on democracy. And I think what's happening with the Texas Democrats is a tremendous help toward that. But they've got to elevate this. So it's not about this little bill or that little bill. Right. It's got to be about something big that is patriotic, that is what America is about, that people fought and died for to pretend to defend. Now, that I get that they're balanced with this. The Democrats still are a governing party. They actually yeah. want to govern. Yeah. They want to get things done, unlike the Republican Party, which has really become just an autocratic movement. So I get the push and pull. But I mean, here in the Lincoln Project, we don't have to defend any of that. We can just speak about it being an autocracy. And we know these people well. But to win this election in 2022, which is going to be very tough for Democrats to do, they're going to have to nationalize this around a great threat. And that great threat is a threat to democracy. I think that that is true. I, I want to go back to uh, Representative Tallarico because, uh, right, you did not, I'm sure, run for office thinking that your cause was going to be defending American democracy from the other major political party, right? It, none of us really thought that, that the, the threat would be much greater from within than ever thinking about any foreign threat at this point. And so I, I guess I, I wonder, as you look at the coming election, how much jeopardy are we in if the laws in the state of Texas become not just standard there, but all over the country. Yeah, this is a historic moment. We just celebrated America's 244th birthday. And if we want this America experiment to survive for 244 more years, we have to act now. Uh, and as was mentioned, Texas Democrats are the ultimate minority. We don't hold a majority in the House. 
We don't hold the majority in the state Senate. We don't have the governor's mansion. And yet we were able to find a way to stop this bill in its tracks and stand up for democracy and voting rights at the same time. And we're not asking uh, Joe Manchin to sacrifice very much. Uh, all we're asking is that he make one exception to one Senate rule to save this American experiment of ours. You know, so many of my colleagues are making tremendous sacrifices. They're leaving yeah. behind kids, they're leaving behind elderly parents, they're leaving behind sick loved ones. One of my colleagues canceled her wedding to be able to break quorum and kill this bill. And so the, the contrast between what we've had to do and what Joe Manchin has to do couldn't be more stark. And, and obviously Joe Manchin's task ahead is nothing compared to the sacrifices that brave Americans yep. from Normandy to Selma have made to protect the sacred right to vote. Yeah, absolutely. And your governor is acting like an old Jim Crow governor threatening to arrest y'all when you get back. Sochi, is this going to happen? Are Democrats going to, you know, the, the people who made Joe Biden the nominee and the only reason he's president are the very voters who are being attacked now in these states. He said he was always going to have those voters back. He said that out loud. It's on tape. Are, is he going to allow Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema's love and devotion to the filibuster break allow force him to break faith with those voters is that what's happening are these two people going to force the president of the united states to break faith with the voters who got him in well i think that president biden is committed to ensuring that something happens if we continue to see that there is no action then i do think that you will eventually see the white house put their political muscle um, around this to, to end a legislative procedure that uh, makes no sense right now um, when it comes to voting rights, right? That's standing in the way. One of the things that you showed a clip earlier of Governor Abbott and misinformation, I think one thing that is also lost on the messaging right now is that, you know, Republicans in Texas, the indicted um, attorney general in Texas actually admitted that the whole reason why this was happening is because if places like in Harris County, in Houston, Texas, one of the largest counties in Texas, if they would have mailed applications to yeah. African-American and Latino voters, that they would have, they would have lost, lost the election in Texas. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so one of the things that Democrats must continue to do is to tell people exactly why they're doing this. Combat the Republican lies that are in the states. And I've seen the Texas yeah. Democrats do a great job of that. And I know we're out of time, but very quickly before we go, I just want to tell you guys, as you guys are calling your senators and everybody about these two bills, this is the difference between the two bills. H.R. 1, which you hear us talking a lot about, which is the, the, the For the People Act, this is an ambitious proposal. It would transform everything about elections. This is everything from um, campaign financing uh, to the way that um, gerrymandering works and all of that sort of thing. The John Lewis Act is a much narrower bill that just addresses reversing the 2013 Supreme Court ruling that made it harder to block racially discriminatory voting laws, basically putting preclearance back in. All the other stuff, the all the other stuff is in H.R. 1, meaning the campaign finance changes, making it easier to vote, making it harder to gerrymander, disclosure on people who give money. Last word to you, Stuart. If we don't do this, then what happens in your view? Well, look, um, I, I think it's our inability to imagine what will happen, um, yeah. which is our greatest danger. Um, yeah. It is a replay of 9-11, and we cannot imagine what could, this attack on America. And we have to get out of that. We call yeah. it the American experiment because it could have failed. It yeah. was an experiment, and it's up to us yeah. to defend that. Absolutely. Um, Texas State Representative James Tallarico, 
cheers to you and all of the Texas Dems. Sochi Inahosa, Stuart Stevens, thank you very much. Um, you guys are great. Up next on The Readout, white Republicans say that they know more about the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. than black people. Critical race theory yeah. goes against everything Martin Luther King has ever told us. Dr. Bernice King, help me out here. The CEO of the King Center and daughter of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself joins me next. Plus, new reporting from Michael Wolff on Trump's frightening abdication of his duties in his final days in office as he pursued the big lie. And as singer Olivia Rodrigo joins the fight to get people vaccinated, tonight's absolute worst are doing the opposite, fighting science instead. Plus, my thoughts on the separate but equal doctrine codified in Plessy versus Ferguson and why it seems to be making a big comeback in today's GQP. The readout continues after this. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Republicans have been doing a thing where they piously defend their partisan calculated war on history by invoking the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They repurpose his words to use them as a shield when defending their Jim Crow era war on facts. Take a look. You're hearing a lot about critical race theory. So what is it? This is a form of teaching that teaches our kids that America is systemically racist and that you're either an oppressor or a victim, and judge a person by the color of their skin, not the content of their character. As the Reverend Dr. King famously said, and he was right, we should judge our fellow citizens by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. Mr. President, we need a strong nation with strong citizens who see each other as Americans, not as oppressors or oppressed. Critical race theory yeah. goes against everything Martin Luther King has ever told us. Don't judge us by the color of our skin. And now they're embracing it, right? They're going backwards. In doing so, they dismiss and diminish the breadth of Dr. King's actual work and teachings. What they fail to note is that throughout his life, Dr. King spoke regularly about eradicating racism, militarism, and poverty. He called for, a just, and for just and equitable housing. He demanded that people be provided a livable wage and called for an end to health care disparities. And finally, and most enduringly, he worked to prevent voter suppression. A mission that remains just as urgent today as it was in 1963 because of the modern Republican Party. You see, it's easy to invoke a few lines that you memorized in high school from a speech. But it's a lot harder to hear the totality of his message. If they actually dug a little deeper or read a little more than just the cliff notes of his work, they would know that Dr. King also said, and I'll quote, 
It is obvious if a man is entered at the starting line in a race 300 years after another man, the first would have to perform some impossible feat to catch up with his fellow runner, unquote. What modern-day Republicans willfully ignore in their revisionist history of King is that when he was alive, he was demonized, surveilled, and accused of being, wait for it, a communist. Sound familiar? What Kevin and his fellow Republicans might want to consider are a few other words from one of the Reverend's sermons. Quote, nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. I'm joined yes. now by Dr. Bernice A. King, CEO of the King Center and the daughter of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm so excited to have you on, Dr. King. Uh, and I want to ask you, so you to, much. well, I follow you on, on Twitter and I love every time you just lovingly rebuke these people who really, in my mind, pervert the meaning of your father's words for their own purposes. How does it feel for you as his daughter to hear his name invoked in defense of refusing to teach history? Well, I mean, come on. Um, it, it is, it is, it is insulting. Um, at one point in my life, I got really upset until I understood, you know, the essence of what my father said in the quote you just mentioned about nothing more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Um, you know, I feel that I, along with my brother and, and those who represent this legacy, have a responsibility to continue to uh, educate people on the truth of my father. You've done an excellent job at everything you just said um, about the fact that he was devoted to eradicating the triple evils of poverty, racism and militarism. And while he invoked those words at the end of his speech, I encourage people to read the whole speech. I think there's a danger to reading the last part. He was a preacher. Preachers will lay out conditions and circumstances and challenges. And at the end, they want to leave you with a sense of hope. That was the hope part of his speech. We hope that my children will live in this nation where they will be judged by the color of this. I mean, the content of character and not the color of their skin. But we're not dismissing the fact that there are these conditions that he talked about during the I Have a Dream speech uh, concerning the black community that have to be addressed. He would never encourage us to ignore the conditions and, and not to put forth the effort to address them. But he would also encourage us to study the whole context of history. Yes, He did that. And where do we go from here? He laid out how we got to where we are. And so daddy would never say, excuse the history and let's just start here. You said it so excellent. What he said when you start behind the race, he also said um, if a nation uh, has done something against the people for hundreds of years, then it must also turn around and do something for those people. I would suggest, although he did not use the words reparations, he was suggesting reparations. Now, what that looks like practically is a whole nother discussion. Uh, and so, you know, that's why I always say do not Take excerpts from my father. Study him holistically. Um, there is a lot. He wrote extensively. That's that's the beauty of all of this. No matter what people try to say, there are books out. And I thank God we just did a new publishing deal. So there are going to be more books out and more writings so that the record will continue to be straight. Yeah. And I thank God that he was able to write like this because for people to be able to misappropriate him this way. Um, yeah. Is, is actually beyond um, insulting. 
But, you know, what helps me and gives me relief is, is the scripture. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you Amen. free. Um, Amen. And so I'm free from the anger. Um, and I see my responsibility to say, no, you will not misappropriate my father this way. Because that is now I'm one of those four children. And frankly, I don't like the state and condition of black America right now, not because of anything we did, but, but because of what has been not just been done to us, but things that are continuing to be done. Um, uh, you know, I, I can talk about some things personally, yeah. just yeah. living in the neighborhood that I live in, the, the redlining that goes on. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. yes, there, there's that, exactly. So, no, they they don't have a right to do it and they will continue to do it. And thank God for you and so many other voices. And we continue to speak truth. Wow. You know, and, and people, you know, it, it feels like people have sort of muppetized your father. They, they only know that one line, the color of our skin, content of our character. And they really don't know anything else. Exactly. I mean, he wrote a sermon at one point in which he said America might go to hell, which Jeremiah Wright sort of yes. well, he, never, of. he never got to do. He never got to deliver that sermon. That was the Amen. sermon he was going to deliver the Sunday after um, he was assassinated. That's um, right. And, and in fact, he told my mother several months before, he said, all of the signs for the rise of fascism are here in our nation. Um, okay. And she, she explicitly told me that over and over again. I don't know why, yeah. but she told me in her latter, in the latter days. Uh, and uh, look, look, look where we are. And look where we are. Let me play another. Uh, this is another uh, soundbite of your father. This was in July 5th, 1963, talking about another thing we talk about a lot now, the filibuster. Take a listen. The tragedy is that uh, we have a Congress uh, with a Senate that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster to keep the majority of people from even voting. They won't let the majority senators vote. And certainly they wouldn't want the majority of people to vote because they know they do not represent the majority of the American people. In fact, they represent in their own states a very small minority. The irony is that, that at that time, these were the, the Southern Democrats, the Dixiecrats, who were filibustering and trying right. to stop civil rights. What do you make of the fact that the Republican Party has now taken that up as their mantle and that some Democrats are still clinging to the filibuster to not stop them from taking away voting rights? You know, I have agonized about this over and over and over again because I know it's a difficult place. Um, in some regards, the filibuster can be used appropriately. Um, uh, but in other regards, such as now, it's used inappropriately. Uh, and so I understand uh, uh, the, the difficulty in coming to a decision to kind of do that nuclear sure. option and get yeah. rid of it. Um, yeah. But we're dealing with something so dire mm. um, that, that to me, can really break our democracy. Yeah. And, you know, when you get to that place, you, you may have to take that chance, you That's know, right. and, and trust that the universe will be on the side yeah. of justice and come around um, yep. going forward and, and protect us. Uh, yep. But it's, it's at that place. But I'm telling you, I have agonized because I understand yeah. not getting rid of it. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Bernice King, it's such an honor to talk to you. Thank you very much. We really appreciate that all you do for the country. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate you. All right. Well, still ahead. Stunning revelations about Donald Trump's final days in office in a new book by Michael Wolff. The bottom line, it was way worse than we ever imagined. Michael Wolff joins us next. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. A slate of new books on the Trump administration are being released this month, and each of them paints a devastating picture of the ex-president's last year in office. Among them is Landslide, the final days of the Trump presidency by Michael Wolff, which portrays how we were essentially living on a knife's edge following the November election. According to Wolff, Trump was so distracted by his pursuit of the big lie that nobody was running the country during the entire transition period. He writes that by late November, Trump had given up on any interest or pretense in executive matters. The election challenge had made everything else meaningless. All daily briefings were canceled, including national security briefings. All efforts to return his attention to pandemic issues, vaccine rollout or critical intelligence failed. Never before, it seemed to many, had a sitting president so abdicated his prescribed and daily duties and so turned from the most critical issues of the moment. Wow. Michael Wolf, the author of Landslide, The Final Days of the Trump Presidency, joins me now. And Michael, that is pretty stunning. We were essentially without a president from the moment of the election on. Did he ever re-engage? He was solely focused on um, the election that he felt was stolen from him in every possible way. Um, I mean, there was no moment when he turned away from that issue. So anything else that was not involved with that was he he was he was um, uh, absent from uninterested in and in so many ways contemptuous of. You also write that he actually tried to delay the election and use covid to do it. Can you elaborate on that? Well, this was at, during during the campaign when things were going going badly. And obviously covid was keeping him from his uh, his um, uh, uh, beloved uh, stadium um, um, uh, mass stadium mass meetings. Um, he said, "Well, you know, why don't we just uh, delay the election? People can't vote. They can't get to the ballot. Um, uh, they can't cast their ballot. Let's just delay it." And um, um, this was, I know, of two occasions when when he said this, and on both occasions he was met with. Um, um, uh, horror um, from the people around him. And whose job was it to, I don't know, stuff these ideas in a drawer and just not do them? How did the chiefs, how did the staff, the White House staff react to this? Did they just pretend they didn't hear him and just not do it? Did he ever follow up and say, why isn't the election delayed? You know, I mean, I mean essentially that was the, the, the skill or the craft of working for Donald Trump, of being an aide to Donald Trump is not to carry out what he wanted to do, but the exact opposite, not to carry out what he wanted to do. And I think that that was, you know, this is, this is uh, largely over the course of four years. Um, um, you know, you know, Donald Trump just, just spews whatever comes into his head. That's what he says he wants. Um, and, um, uh, the overwhelming uh, portion of that was stuff that he, a couldn't do, B shouldn't yeah. do, um, and um, and C no one was going to let him do. So yes, so he was in a in a in, in a real way 
Um, the country was he was subverted by his staff. The country was protected by his staff. And that's what anonymous. So we now know uh, Miles Taylor uh, said in his letter as well. I am fascinated by what you write about Donald Trump's treatment of his sycophants, because it's not shocking that he doesn't really respect any of these people. But some of the treatment of them is pretty wild. You write that Donald Trump claimed that Chris Christie, who was one of his main sycophants, uh, gave him COVID. Trump blamed Christie giving him Chris uh, for giving him COVID. Christie had sat across from him at the debate prep table and Trump had seen the spittle come out of his mouth and tried to duck from the droplets. Is there any evidence to that or is it just his sort of general contempt for people who kiss up to him? There also you have a story here well, no, that I mean, he said that it's, it's quite well, possible just gonna, that, that he did, did give him did. COVID. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other one I mean, is it's, also, it's by, also possible that 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 the president gave him COVID. Gave so, him COVID. Um, right. But, but all, all throughout the remember, you know, that in the, the White House was as a dangerous a place to be as a nursing Absolutely. home. Everybody got COVID and everybody blamed everybody else for giving them COVID. The, the, another sycophant who he treated quite poorly, I suppose you could say, is Bill Barr. Not that one has much sympathy. You said Trump had been personally calling around to various U.S. attorneys in swing state districts trying to get them to open investigations into election fraud. This is after the election. He blamed their resistance and defiance on Barr. And this is a, a pretty dramatic quote. If I had won, the president said, Barr would have licked the floor if I asked him to. What a phony. I have to be honest with you. This is one of those ca- uh, cases where I actually think Donald Trump is right. I, I think know. William I, Barr abso- would have abso- licked the floor. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, that was that was one of those things. And, it, and it's a kind of a thing, you know, you know, Trump. And it, I think Trump felt himself losing power. Uh, I mean, he must have felt felt this as yeah. as after after November 3rd, you know, I mean, I mean, the rats were leaving the ship. I mean, it, and he must have felt that it must have increased his desperation. Yeah, I mean, he even was able to get Ronna Romney McDaniel to drop Romney from her name. I mean, the amount of sycophancy. Can you have you been able to sort of discern from talking to so many people why it is that somebody who seemed in so many ways feeble minded um, was able to attract still so much sycophantic loyalty and get people to go along with so much of this garbage. Well, I, you know, I, I think that that might, might actually not be the case. So there was everybody who was around Trump in my experience, everybody there's, there's some, there's a clear eyed recognition. Donald Trump is crazy. Um, Donald Trump has to be managed. Uh, Donald Trump is, um, is, is, is going to ask us to do things that we cannot do. Um, yeah. Throughout this thing, oh, m- many of his lawyers, um, um, not Rudy Giuliani, which is another story, but many of the White House lawyers said, I, you know, I'm not going to do this. I, I'm not yeah. going to risk my career. I'm not going to go to jail for Donald Trump. Yeah, there are too many of them who are willing to do just that. The book is called Landslide, The Final Days of the Trump Presidency. I'm definitely going to pick it up. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Best of luck with the book, uh, Michael Wolf. Uh, and up next, as the White House adds some star power to their vaccine outreach, the conservatives' war on these life-saving vaccines is reaching a fever pitch. Tonight's absolute worst is straight ahead, and it's terrifying. You don't want to miss it. former occupant of the White House who couldn't manage to get any A-list star power to support his initiatives, Kanye West not included. We saw how that went. 
Today, the biggest pop star in the country, Olivia Rodrigo, teamed up with, with President Biden to tell young people that the COVID vaccine is good for you. She met with President Biden and Dr. Anthony Fauci today, part of a campaign to urge young millennials and Gen Zers to get their shot to stay happy and healthy. She also recorded videos for her 24 million followers on Instagram and TikTok touting the vaccine as safe and effective. Now, if you ask, who's that? 18-year-old Olivia Rodrigo has the number one song and album in the country. Thank you very much. And her debut single, Driver's License, is the biggest song of the year, smashing daily and weekly streaming records. See what you learn on cable? It all comes at a critical time as vaccination rates are lagging among young adults and as the Delta variant fuels COVID outbreaks, particularly among young people. The White House messaging stands in stark contrast with the vaccine skeptic death cult messaging from Republican lawmakers in Tennessee who decided that you can't tell teenagers anything whatsoever, halting all vaccine outreach of any kind. After the state's top vaccination official was fired for sending a memo suggesting teens could get vaccinated without their parents' permission. Dr. Michelle Fiscus spoke with Chris Hayes last night. And now has devolved into uh, a moratorium on messaging for any kind of vaccine to children, whether that's infants or um, children for back to school vaccines or HPV vaccines and, and even canceling school based flu immunization clinics scheduled for the fall um, as a result of the saber rattling amongst some of our legislators. Well, it's no surprise since the right wing talking heads Tuckums and Laura Ingraham over at Fox are trying to get their viewers killed by smearing the vaccine and a Fox News cast off over at Newsmasks casually spouted some eugenics while knocking vaccines. I've always thought about vaccines and I always think about just nature and the way everything works. And, and I feel like a vaccination in, in a weird way is just generally kind of going against nature. Like, I mean, if, if there is some disease out there, maybe there's just an ebb and flow to life where something's supposed to wipe out a certain amount of people. And that's just kind of the way evolution goes. Just say no to drugs. No, no, no. All that is wrong. The anti-vaccine idiocy in Tennessee also comes as Republican lawmakers push to make vaccine deniers a protected class against discrimination. Montana recently passed a law doing just that with employment. Meanwhile, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who infamously banned businesses from requiring proof of vaccination, is branding his opposition to COVID restrictions, selling anti-Fauci merch from his campaign website as Florida sees some of the highest rates of new cases in the country. And that is why the Republican death cults, vaccine disinformation and war on public health is yet again tonight's absolute worst. So this happened yesterday on old Fox News. America was not founded on racism. Uh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, there was slavery going on, but slavery itself was not initially a racist thing. It never was about race initially. So to sit there and take it like America was founded on racism is a complete lie. Mm -hmm. OK, so here's the problem. History would like to have a word with either that guy or whoever brokered his soul. Hope he got a good check. OK, see, the way that the MAGA right is currently in this country um, setting like going to war over history and anti-racism education when they fake call it critical race theory, it's basically a freak out over white Americans becoming more woke on matters of race. 
Now, you'd think based on that freak out that critical race theorists or authors of wokeness self-help books like Robin DiAngelo or anti-racism author Ibram X. Kendi invented race to hear the right wingers tell it. But the truth is, if y'all hate talking about race, you're going to want to have a word with your precious founding fathers. Because as actual critical race theorists will tell you, race is not a biological reality. It's a cultural construct and one that was literally an idea born right here in the good old USA. Now, for most of semi-modern human history, Europeans didn't even use the term white to describe anything other than wealthy women who didn't work in the fields or in the mines. It wasn't until the 17th century when the Europeans who colonized this country started using white to distinguish themselves from the so-called savages, the indigenous people they initially tried to enslave but mostly killed off with germs, and from those those of African descent, who they decided, by definition, because they had colored blood, were unequal and therefore enslavable. And not just them, but also their children and their children's children forever to be owned by the slave owner and to be traded and sold around like cattle, which is why American slavery was called chattel slavery. And that was true even if their children looked like this. They passed a Fugitive Slave Act in 1850 that gave any white person the right to kidnap and re-enslave any black person who escaped from bondage and even collect a bounty. They even invented words, like entire words, to designate how much colored blood a person had in them. Octoroon for one-eighth African-American and quadroon for one-fourth and mulatto. Race is very much an American, specifically a white American invention. Enter one Homer Plessy, a very dapper 19th century New Orleans shoemaker born in 1862 as a free colored person, his descriptor under American law. Besides being a shoemaker, Mr. Plessy was an activist. He was part of a group in New Orleans who were determined to overturn the laws that began segregating white and non-white people after Union troops pulled out of the South in 1877. Now, no one really knows what he looked like, but this mural is a pretty good guesstimate. Because Homer Plessy, who descended from the white Haitian plantation owners who fled to New Orleans after the enslaved rebelled and overthrew slavery there, was only one-eighth black. In American terms, an octoroon. In short, He looked very much like a white man. At age 30, he volunteered to challenge the Louisiana Separate Cars Act of 1890, which designated nice, clean train cars for white riders and basic, barely better than cattle cars for colored riders, but technically equal accommodations. So on a hot day in June of 1892, Mr. Plessy bought a first-class ticket in a whites-only car in New Orleans, and he'd been chosen, by the way, to be the guy because of how white he looked. A conductor, who was also in on the plant, asked him if he was colored. When he said, yes, I am, the conductor ordered him to sit in the colored car. After he refused, he was dragged off the train in handcuffs and charged with violating that separate Cars Act. The citizens group hired Albion Winogar Turgay, a white lawyer from New York who had fought for the rights of African-Americans. And Mr. Turgay filed suit against the judge who originally charged Mr. Plessy, George John H. Ferguson. Now, unfortunately, the United States Supreme Court would reach the same decision in the infamous case Plessy versus Ferguson, which established the concept of separate but equal in American law, an idea that persisted all the way through the 1950s when Rosa Parks did the exact same thing that Mr. Plessy did, volunteering as an activist member of the NAACP to refuse to move to the colored section of a public bus in the 1950s. But it was the way that the 
Plessy versus Ferguson ruling played out that relates to what we're dealing with today. In that infamous ruling, the justices found that there was nothing wrong with making Mr. Plessy and other colored riders use a separate car. Quote, we consider the underlying fallacy of Plessy's argument, Justice Henry Brown wrote, to consist in the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. If this be so, it's not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. In other words, it was basically just an inconvenience. It was separate, but so what? Black people could ride, right? If they felt bad about it, that was their own fault. No harm, no foul on America. And that's basically the same logic that Justice Samuel Alito used to justify the Arizona voter restrictions. Sure, having your polling place moved at the last minute because you're in a Democratic precinct is inconvenient and making it so hard to vote absentee that only rich people can do it and mostly black and brown people get stuck standing in seven-hour lines is an inconvenience, but you can vote, right, eventually, somewhere. And you can use that argument literally for almost anything. Like Tucker Carlson bemoaning diversity in neighborhoods. In his book, he writes, if you grew up in America, suddenly nothing looks the same. Your neighbors are different. You may not recognize your hometown. Human beings aren't wired for that. They can't digest change at this pace. Or when Rand Paul defended restaurant discrimination. How about desegregating lunch counters? Lunch counters? Well, what it gets into is, is that then if you decide that restaurants are publicly owned and not privately owned, does the owner of the restaurant own his restaurant or does the government own his restaurant? These are important philosophical debates, but not a very practical discussion. I mean, freedom of choice, am I right? Unless you want to have your staff or customers wear a mask or get vaccinated, they don't die of COVID. In short, the MAGA right wants to take us backwards to Homer Plessy's America, where discrimination and disparate treatment are just an inconvenience. And those demanding equality are the ones who've got the problem. And that's tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.